in the book of Luke, chapter 36, eh, sorry, Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. You may find these verses in your pew Bibles on page 1604 page 1604 okay. Luke chapter 7 verses 36 to 50. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt cancelled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then, he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord.
Let us go to God in prayer. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your word read to us. We pray that your words may continue to lodge in our hearts, that they may continue to grow deep in our hearts, so that we may be transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In a couple of the previous sermons in the series we are doing, I touched on the subject of forgiveness. And this week, we're going to look at it a little bit more as the main topic. How many of us have been in situations or got into situations where we have felt guilty? Quite a number of us. How many of us have gotten into situations where we felt shame. Thank you for being not ashamed to admit it. Guilt and shame are common human emotions. You and I see them as negative emotions and we would rather not have to grapple with them. And shame and guilt can be very powerful emotions colour our decisions that affect the way we live. In the extreme, when they get toxic, they paralyse us and prevent us from living well. Human beings learnt guilt and shame very, very early on. When Adam and Eve gave in to temptation, disobeyed God and ate the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Bible tells us the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. The serpent promised that they would be like God, but instead of being like God, they found out how totally unlike God they were. Stephen Simmons, in his book, Wounds That Heal, tell us or writes that they found that they were the opposite of everything that the serpent had said and that, that shame and that guilt revealed the false God they had bowed to. Before that, they were naked and unashamed, the Bible says, but now they knew guilt. They knew shame. What's guilt? A little boy asked to define guilt said that he wasn't quite sure what it was, but he thought it had something to do with feeling bad when he kicked girls. Obviously, a little boy and not a bigger boy. Guilt has to do with our actions and behaviour. We do something that is not right, guilt kicks in. Shame, on the other hand, has to do with our identity, who we are. And so if we are not something that community or society or culture expects, we are made to feel ashamed of who we are. 
But guilt and shame are not completely bad emotions. Otherwise, God wouldn't have put it into our makeup. And although we see them as negative emotions, they are there for a purpose. Evelyn and James Whitehead, in their book, Transforming Our Painful Emotions, point out that there are benefits to negative emotions like shame and guilt. Because shame, these, these two emotions kind of help us to know our boundaries. And so shame affirms the necessary boundaries that support our sense of self. It has to do with dignity, yeah? Shame warns of the risks of premature exposure, protects privacy that makes genuine intimacy possible. So if we get into relationships, we should not. Shame warns us so that we may form good friendships. Shame is one of the roots of personal integrity. Guilt. Guilt reminds us of the shape of our best selves. The things we do that are life-giving, the things that we do that are, help us to live well when we don't do them, guilt kicks in. Guilt recognizes discrepancies between ideals and behavior. Guilt defends the commitments that give meaning to our life. Guilt often supports our sense of personal dignity. But more often than not, in a fallen world, these emotions are allowed to fester and they become toxic in our lives. In Asian communities and societies, shame and guilt are used to school children into behaving themselves, pushing them to do better in studies and work. But these, how, how many of us have come across situations, and I think I've used these illustrations before. Get C, cannot get B. Ah. So, that is so shame. Okay, work harder. Get B. I got B, cannot get A. Shame some more. Go work and guilt, huh? Go work some more. A. A plus, no, ah. A plus. Wow, so easy one, ah, the exam. And so the child feels unworthy in the sense that he or she can never live up to that level of competency that God has made in us. And they leave lasting wounds in the child's heart. A child who is told over and over again this kind of thing, even though he has worked hard, done his best, grow up with lots of guilt and about not being able to do well and with a lot of shame about being stupid. The only way we can break out of that cycle of these things that are toxic is to experience forgiveness. God's forgiveness coming to us through grace. 
the text that was read to us shows us the kind of effect forgiveness has on someone who has received it with an open heart. It is possible not to receive forgiveness, by the way. That woman in the story seems to have come into contact with Jesus before, um, perhaps even received some measure of forgiveness. And she comes to this place where Jesus is having dinner with Simon the Pharisee. Uh, and she seems to know what uh, you know, he's, he's talking about and she stands behind and listens. And if you think it's strange that you know, any other person can come in and uh, stand behind people who are having dinners. In those days, the houses were such that where they had dinners, um, kind of what we would call middle-class families today, there would be an open area for dining where people can come and go and it would be kind of open to the outside. And so people could come and go and see who there is. And so this woman came to that place and as she listens to the conversation, as she stands with Jesus, she is overwhelmed by gratitude, by perhaps something that he had done for her before, and she begins to weep. In the way that they recline, where the woman would stand would be probably just behind Jesus' feet. And her tears fall on Jesus' feet, and maybe because Simon had not given him water to wash his feet, uh, you could see dusts and the tears begin to kind of streak, leave streaks on that dust that is on Jesus' feet. And so the woman loosens her hair and dries his feet with her hair. Simon the Pharisee looks at them both, at what occurs, and he makes a judgment. And we've talked about making judgments some time back. The thing is, in what he says, those words that he says in his heart, he has judged not just the woman, but he has judged Jesus as well. He first sees the woman as a sinner, first judgment. And then he sees Jesus, he assumes Jesus is a prophet, or he uh, looks at Jesus as a prophet, and he's saying, hey, if this prophet is worth his salt, he would know who this woman is and would not even allow her to come near him. And when we look at something or someone, we bring to it certain mindsets and perspectives that are embedded in our hearts and in our souls. And these mindsets and these perspectives have been formed by our experiences. Uh, the way we think, the way we, our attitudes and so on. And we make a value judgment or when we evaluate something or when we, like Simon the Pharisee, make a judgment on the people we encounter. It is these mindsets and perspectives and attitudes that kick in. Each 
of the persons in the story, Jesus, the woman, the Pharisee, saw each other, looked at each other, saw some things about each other. What did Simon the Pharisee see? As I said earlier, he looked at the woman, he saw a sinner. We don't know if Simon had kind of heard of her before, vaguely recognises her and knows her by reputation and so called her a sinner, or if he saw her just loosening her hair and made that judgement because only loose women and prostitutes would loosen their hair in public. But whatever it is, Simon judged her. Simon took the place of a judge. Simon looked at Jesus and saw a prophet. And in his mind, prophets had to act in a certain way, holding certain uh, viewpoints, certain stands. And if a prophet was a holy person, then that kind of stand must be very much like a Pharisee stand because Pharisees were supposed to be holy people. And it never occurred to Simon as he looked at Jesus that Jesus, as a prophet, would know precisely who the woman was and look beyond that to her heart, to what she needed and therefore extend forgiveness to her. And so Simon saw and judged both the woman and Jesus. What did the woman see? The woman saw her own sin. She recognised in herself that she was a sinful person. She saw how she was caught in it. She saw the darkness of her sin. And then she looks at Jesus and she sees a saviour who loves her. A saviour who pronounces forgiveness toward her. And her heart overflowed with gratitude. Nothing seems to be mentioned about her reaction to Simon. He's there all the while, she's there. But there does not seem to be any interaction. And perhaps in the intensity of her gratitude towards Jesus, the woman doesn't really even notice Simon there. What did Jesus see? Jesus saw a woman who knew her sin, who knew she needed forgiveness, and so he extended it to her. Jesus saw a woman overwhelmed by gratitude and was not embarrassed to show it, and he accepted her gift for him. Jesus also saw Simon, blinded by his own prejudice, needing to be freed from them and to be taken to a place where he could see people as God saw them. And so Jesus tells a short two-line parable to open Jesus' eyes to, sorry, to open Simon's eyes to not outward appearances, but what is in the heart. 
You know, there's a saying that goes, we look, but we do not see. I know some of us look for our car keys, huh? They're, all, they're on the table and we look everywhere and we don't see them until something nudges us and we see that. So we're looking, but we don't see. We can look at someone and yet we don't see the real person. We so easily form opinions based on outer appearances. And I remember a workshop uh, that the staff in that company where I worked for attended after we were all, uh, after we had all gone through the retrenchment exercise. They had a workshop to help us uh, prepare ourselves to find jobs. And one of the things we're told is make your impression in the first 30 minutes because people form their opinions on you in that 30 minutes. Oh, sorry, 30 seconds. All right, very short time. And that's how the way the world works. And we in the church, myself included, have assimilated that. You know, in a community, when we spend time with each other, we know things about each other. But I realize we don't know enough things to embrace each other unconditionally, as Jesus told us to do. Love one another as I have loved you. We have opinions of people. We sometimes have misgivings about people. But there is a lot more to a person than just the outer experience or even how a person speaks or dresses. And because we have residual of the sinful nature within us, we are not all together, we are not as integrated as we would like to be, we are fragmented. And so what is on the outside doesn't always show what is on the inside. And because we are on a journey of being transformed into the people God made us to be, the persons that God made each one of us to be, we are kind of like uh, diamonds in the raw. Diamonds in the raw look like stones. And if you don't have a practiced eye, you would not be able to recognize them. And God alone sees the heart. God is the one with that practiced eye who can see that diamond in the rough. And he can see the person that he created that one to be, fully transformed. And so Jesus sees people in the same way. He doesn't just see the person in the present he doesn't just kind of know what has happened with the person in the past, but he also sees that person in the future, the finished product and what the person can be. And so when Peter comes to Jesus, he takes one look at Peter, and you can find that in uh, John chapter 1. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Cephas is... Uh, 
Greek. Peter is Latin, I think. Oh no, sorry. Peter Petros is Greek. One or the other, anyway. So Jesus, in effect, called Peter Rocky. Uh, you won't find him with boxing gloves, but you know, Peter was the original Rocky. But then when we read the Gospels and we read Paul's letter to the Galatians, Peter wasn't a rock. He was clay. He had weaknesses and flaws. He denied Jesus. And even after Jesus' resurrection and he met Jesus and Jesus commissioned him to take care of the flock, when confronted with the opinions of others, when he was in Galatia and those people who held fast to the law came, Christians, he pulled away from the Gentiles because he was afraid of what they would say to him and afraid of them judging him. So even in those days in the church, that was taking place too. Hardly a rock. But then Jesus was not looking at Peter just in the here and now. Jesus was looking at Peter, seeing his potential and seeing Peter right at the end. What Peter had in him to be the foundation of the church. On this rock, I will build my church. Peter became who God created him to be over a lot, the, the period of his life. And we see that maturity coming through in the two letters that he wrote. He experienced and he accepted God's forgiveness. And it is God's forgiveness that frees us to grow and to grow to maturity as the people God made us to be. And so we speak much and often about forgiveness because that is what the church is about. But what does it really mean? In the original language of the Bible, the word translated forgiveness, afi amy, has a couple of meanings. It has several meanings, but two of them uh, stand out. One meaning is to release or to let go. To forgive is to let go of something. And so when God forgives human beings of their sin, God is releasing us or letting us go from the penalty of that sin. Freeing us and letting us go from the grip of sin. The second meaning is an economic one. That word has to do with erasing or cancelling a debt. And so to forgive means to cancel a debt. But we need to remember that when we cancel a debt, it has a cost. If someone owed you money, like um, that creditor that Jesus talked about in the parable, how much was he owed? 500 denarii one and another 50. 
he cancelled both debts and he absorbed that loss of 550 denarii. The two debtors got off free. They didn't have to pay anything. They were released from debt. But the creditor was the one who had to bear the costs, that loss. And when we talk about forgiveness of sins, Jesus is the one who paid that cost, that cost that you and I would have to pay if Jesus had not done it. And it would not just be death, but it would be separation from God forever, lost forever. And the place where that payment was made, that debt was erased, is the cross. And that's just, that is why the cross is central in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus took all the guilt and shame for our sin, for every single sin that was ever committed and for every single sin that will ever be committed. Starting from that bite into the forbidden fruit by Adam and Eve, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died. For every wicked thought and deed committed, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died. For every murder committed, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died as if he committed every one of them. For every act of adultery committed, carried out, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died as if he were the adulterer. For every judgment that was made, like Simon made, like you and I make, Jesus hung on the cross as if he made that judgment in the place of God. For every lie that you and I told, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died as if he were the one who told those lies. For every bit of gossip that passed our lips, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died as if he was the one who passed that gossip on. For every coveting of our neighbor's possessions, Jesus hung on the cross and bled and died. And that is what it means when Isaiah says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Every sin that has ever been committed, every sin that will ever be committed, Jesus paid the penalty for them as if he was the one who had done them all. Sin holds us in bondage. When you are and I are in sin, we are locked. 
we abound in sinful ways of life, sinful patterns of thought, we can't help it. Guilt and shame from sin hold people, hold us in their grip. Only Jesus can bring freedom from that kind of bondage, no one else. And it is only when we acknowledge the fact that you and I are caught in sin's grip and cannot rescue ourselves and acknowledge that Jesus' suffering and death on the cross bears our penalty and accepting his act on the cross, will we be freed? For some of us, that acknowledging, accepting comes at a very fixed point in time. We can name the day and date when that occurred, when we saw the light and we came to the cross. For others of us who have grown up in a Christian family, light was very gradual, like the sun rising very slowly. But nevertheless, we still came to that point where we fully believe that Jesus bore our sins. We can only experience God's forgiveness as deeply as that woman in the story if and when we know how dreadful and terrible sin is. The darkness of sin, the way sin pollutes and pervades every area of life the unredeemed life. And that woman who ministered to Jesus that day, she knew. And when forgiveness was extended to her, that freedom she experienced, she exploded in gratitude. That alabaster jar of ointment would have cost easily an average worker one year's wages, not one day, not, you know, we can go out to the mall and buy ointments, nice ointments that are costly, but it won't cost us a year's wages, uh, I don't think. But in those days, those kind of ointments were costly. And here she was, readily, freely, pouring it out on Jesus' feet. When we don't see how deeply sin can invade our lives, when we cannot see the horror of sin, then the forgiveness extended to us, that forgiveness that Jesus bought on the cross or paid for on the cross, will have very little effect on us like Simon the Pharisee. If, like him, we believe we have no sin, then we will believe or we will see that or we will think that we, will not, we don't need forgiveness. We won't be moved to turn in love uh, to God and love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength. And we see that in Simon. He was blinded to the reality of his own heart and how far a sinful heart can go with prejudice and judging others and condemning others. 
and so on. And one thing leads to another, and it's a slippery slope. And so we are invited to the cross to receive that act of Jesus and to receive Jesus himself into our lives, into our hearts. But let me just say one more thing. It is not to say that once we have said, Jesus, come into my heart, hallelujah, that is it. We are all good for heaven and we don't need to do anything anymore. Our experiences tell us otherwise. We see vestiges and sometimes we do fall into doing the things that we know we should not or we do the things or we don't do the things we should. You see, asking Jesus into our hearts is just the beginning of this journey, this transformative journey with Jesus. Our standing with God is set right. We, are, we have a good standing with God. And He has made us His beloved children. But there are many parts of our lives, and I think you and I know that, the way our patterns of thinking, our attitudes, these all take time to change. And we need Jesus to come in to transform them. It's so possible to invite Jesus into our hearts. And there's this little book called uh, My Heart, Christ's Home. It's so easy to invite him into our house, our heart, show him to the guest room. Here, Jesus, he goes into the guest room, we shut the door and leave him there in the room. And he has no say in the rest of our hearts, in the rest of the rooms of our lives. That was what Simon did. He invited Jesus into his home. But it was much more to suss him out and see whether he was a genuine prophet than to accepting him and to offer hospitality to him. In fact, he didn't even offer the common hospitality that people generally would when you have a guest at home, wash his feet and so on. And so, you and I need to examine our hearts to see if we have given Jesus that freedom to move around the house of our hearts, to bring about healing, restoration and transformation needed. You know, some of our rooms are quite dilapidated because we have not paid attention to them. And Jesus is there to maybe not even renovate but to pull that room down and rebuild something wonderful. And all this, this transformation takes time. And so we are called to work with the Lord, to cooperate with the Lord, to let Him deal with these wrong mindsets, with these bad attitudes, with the flaws and weaknesses we have in us, so that day by day, bit by bit, we become more and more whole and we become more and more like Jesus. And so, my friends, we need to recognize like that woman did that sin can bind us 
entrap us. And there's only one way to be freed, through the cross. To accept Jesus' death on the cross, that it is for us, that it is in our place, and to place our trust in Him and allow the Holy Spirit to bring about God's work in our hearts to bring us forgiveness and freedom and fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Perhaps for some of us, we have been wrestling with something for some time. And we're not sure what to do with it. Perhaps some of us are struggling with guilt, with shame, and wondering whether God will forgive us. Let me assure you that when we turn to Him and we said, no more giving in to sin. I want out. Forgiveness comes. So I want to invite us to bring to the cross the burdens we have, the things that we struggle with, the wounds that have been cost us and to look at that man on the cross because he bears all of it for us. I want to invite us to talk to God and to place in his hands all of those things. And when we give them to him in return, receive his forgiveness. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, you hear our heart's cries. You hear our prayers. You know our hearts. And for those who have brought the things in their hearts and have laid it at the foot of the cross, would you 
send your forgiveness and help us to know this forgiveness in our hearts. And I pray that this may be a day of new beginnings for those who have laid their issues at the foot of the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing our sin, our guilt, our shame, that we may live free and full in the light of your love and your grace. Thank you. We pray this in your mighty and precious name. Amen.